Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is A Professor and CEO, The True Story, Volume 1, and subtitled Growing Up Through Two Wars. Uh, my guest who joins me from Virginia Beach in the United States of America is author Richard T. Cheng. Welcome, sir, to the program. Glad to be here. Well, thank you for joining me. The back of your book really outlines the overview of your life. This is called, or says, it's a true story of a man's full adventure and unusual encounters that are highly interesting to read. That was the, the, the main title on that, but it tells your story. Richard Chenyun Cheng was born in June 1934. Since the age of three... He had been suffering from the war between China and Japan and the Chinese Civil War between the Nationalists and the Communists. He moved frequently to escape the war and suffered immensely from losing his close relatives. At the age of 15, he escaped to mainland China, to, from, from mainland, mainland China to Taiwan, where he grew up and completed his undergraduate education. He was married in Taiwan, and when he decided to go to the States for his master's degree, he left his wife, a son, and another son. When he arrived at the school, he had been thirty only $30 to your name, struggled for 10 years in between studying and working, and when he finally finished his doctoral degree, he became an educator in the effort to develop computer science programs for various industries of higher education. He was promoted from assistant professor to associate professor to full professorship in six short years and to eminent professorship in another three years. That's an amazing accomplishment. In 1985, he decided to give up his position as an eminent professor and chairman of computer science at Old Dominion University to establish a small company through less then five years of struggle, he achieved the goal of making it a multi-million dollar company. In 1991, he received the largest contract the IRS awarded to a small company, which was for $240 million over six years. And you've been active as a uh, in the Organization of Chinese Americans, the Committee of 100, and the Chinese American Foundation for Americans. And you've also done a lot of philanthropic work, easy for me to say. Welcome to the program, sir. Honored to visit with you. It is my honor to be with you. Your story is remarkable. You have uh, penned this in a little over 300 pages, I believe it is. Why do you think that your story is uh, one that will grab the attention of the reader? Well, I think it uh, contains uh, the details of my true story, and which is, uh, to me, it's very exciting. And come to think of it, it's amazing to me that I have uh, go, going through so much in my lifetime. This is why I decided to write it when I was 62 years old. Started to write it. Start to write it. And how long did it take, Professor, to complete? Uh, about three years. Three years. You have uh, such a remarkable history, and many people that would have this history might be reluctant to share its details. You've talked about the warring situation of, of surviving two different war scenarios. How long a uh, time frame did that cover? It covers uh, my age of 3 to age of 15 years so so 3 to 15 you were in uh, I won't call them dire circumstances but definitely dif difficult your family moved around a lot you also mentioned that some of your family members uh, suffered during that wartime uh, what was the result of your family environment well it uh, was <coughs> started with 7 moved from Nanjing to Chongqing and from Chongqing to Guizhou, it, in, in the meantime, my sisters, my grandmother, my grandfather, and brother died uh, of uh, lacking of medication wow. due to embargo by the Japanese. And so we lost uh, four close relatives. That must have been a very difficult time for you. And at, at 15, is that when you escaped the circumstances that you were uh, in, growing up in? Yes. 
Yes, at the uh, age of 15, I escaped uh, mainland China with my mom and father to Taiwan. To Taiwan. How was that escape possible? Was it one that was permitted, or did you leave the country under under cover and uh, secretly? Yes. Uh, my father <coughs> has to leave home and uh, stay in his uh, station and escape the communist uh, regime to Taiwan on the ship <coughs> ship transporting ship. Okay. That uh, and did you also use a transport ship to to escape mainland China? Yes, and uh, three days later, my mom and I and my dog Lion had to uh, go out at night as if we were shopping, and uh, while we we're going through the city to the pier, that was uh, a scary experience. And we boarded a sampan, uh, a, a, a specially equipped ship, uh, boat for us. Only my mother and I and, and the dog lion. And uh, escaped the Fuzhou, from Fuzhou to Ma Wei. That's going through the Ming River down to the ship waiting uh, to transport uh, soldiers. We were on the soldier transporting ship to Taiwan. Really? Uh, the soldiers were, I'm assuming, the opposition then? Yes, those are national, nationalist soldiers. Chiang Kai-shek's, Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek, the uh, president, right. was ordering to, to ship to Taiwan. They shipped uh, close to, to a million soldiers to Taiwan and uh, ready to counterattack after the regroup. Where do you think the, the, the drive or the ambition to pursue education came from? Well, I, <clears throat> I learned that uh, education is very important. And uh, why in Taiwan... I was teaching in college, and uh, without uh, mass, uh, advanced degree, you you don't get, you don't get uh, promotions and uh, and so forth. So <clears throat> I decided to go to U.S. to obtain my master's degree. And what what time frame was that? Was that in the early fifties or or so? Uh, in the late 50s and early 60s. Early 60s. And you, your English, I'm sure, was uh, not developed at that time. How long did it take you? How difficult was it for you to adapt to the English-speaking world? I came to the U.S. without uh, preparation of uh, English. I only learned it from high school, high school level English. And uh, when I came here... I was only Chinese student in, on campus, so I was forced to speak to my fellow students and professors, and uh, I also repaired TVs. Really? By driving truck to neighbors uh, in the city, so I pick up the language rather quickly. Well, you have fifteen chapters or so in this uh, over 300 pages. You say it took about three years. One of the chapters that caught my attention was Purple Flowers and Crashing Plane. Uh, what is the content of that chapter? That chapter uh, uh, describes my age of 10 or so. And uh, station in Chongqing, uh, an airport called Baisi, then that was a period of time. The crashing plane, what does that entail? What is that? Is that an actual plane that you you viewed that, that crashed, or what did that impact your story? Alone in the field, when the plane was uh, tailing smoke and uh, crashed near near me, only two three hundred yards away. Wow. 
you, in your story, did you write this to encourage other people? Was it a family project? What is the the reason that you wanted to share all of the details of your life? Well, I just felt it's interesting to describe how lack of education of uh, of a child and uh, later on catching up in studies not until I was in high school I start to try real hard in to study and uh, later on I became an educator I realized that uh, importance of advanced degree so I came to the US to pursue that and uh, after I reached my goal of uh, my profession I decided to go into business and this this book describes my uh, entire life uh, in a manner that uh, I have determination and the drive to accomplish something, and uh, I did it. Would you also, because I, I certainly look at your story as one of inspiration and determination on a personal level, but do you feel like maybe your story will help someone else that's going through a struggle? Yes, yes. I I think, I think it uh, describes uh, my... Uh, Lack of education in the, in the beginning is not so detrimental to my success. There's I can chop and uh, in the high school level and uh, and going on for my college education. Does your family history, besides you, uh, mom and dad, were they also educated people or were they regular folks? My father is educated. My mom, my mom is not. And the underlying motivation, I guess, from the story would be, don't let circumstances destroy your future. You can make it if you try. Yes, you you said it so so well for me. Oh, thank you. Two hundred and forty million dollar professor. That also is a fascinating story. How did you get the idea that you could, as a uh, a specialist in computer science and so on? How did you feel that you were qualified to start a company and uh, go after business in the marketplace? Well, my son plays a important role in this. He convinced me that uh, my trade, my field, could be applied to commerce as well. So he he taught me into a slapish com- a small company, and. Uh, we just go from there. It's it's an incredible story. Again, the title of the book is The $240 Million Professor, and it also says it's Volume 1. Is there a Volume 2, 3, or 4 coming in the near future? Yes. There's a Volume 2. Describe my, uh, my age 15 to 27 in Taiwan. Volume 3 is uh, describing my struggling years in the U.S., until I uh, establish a small company. Number volume four describes uh, the tragedy and uh, triumph. That is, I have uh, suffered lots of tragedies in my life, and uh, so as in my adult lives, I suffer a lot from illness to loss of relatives, and so forth. Thank you for taking time to share your story. This is a, a, an inspiring read. If you want to find, about, find out what it takes to be successful in business and in life, this book is filled with anecdotal material. It has photos in it. It talks about your personal life, but it also is one that will work and inspire anybody that needs to be encouraged. The title of the book, again, is The $240 Million Professor, Volume 1, Growing Up Through Two Wars. And my guest has been professor and uh, entrepreneur and author Richard T. Chang. Thank you.
Prof- and, Professor, mm-hmm. I understand that there actually has been a change to the title, although it came out as the $240 million professor. You had some concerns that people might raise their eyebrows to that, so it's been changed. What is the uh, current title of your book? The Professor and CEO, True Story. True Story. And if they look under the title, they'll find it, but if they also look under the author, Richard T. Chang, they'll also be able to locate it. Yes. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Where can my listeners get a copy of your book? I think they can get it now <clears throat> through uh, Amazon.com and uh, through Barnes and & Noble and uh, some other stores. Very good. They can request it by name. And for clarification, that title has been changed to A Professor and CEO, A True Story. Also, and by your name, Richard T. Chang, yes. C-H-E-N-G. Richard, do you have a website yet? Yes, my website is uh, simply www.richardtcheng.com. Fabulous. Thank you for joining me today, and best of luck with your book. I think it's uh, excellent reading and should be a part of everyone's library. Thank you for joining me today, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Welcome to Author Voices On Air, and I'm your host, Rick Bell. Our next book will appeal to many of our listeners, especially with the lead-up to the holidays, when we can all be a little bit guilty of overindulging in festive fare. The title of the book is Body Weight Regulation, Essential Knowledge to Lose Weight and Keep It Off. And here to tell us more and to give us some much-needed inspiration is the author, Joseph Proietto. Welcome to the show, Joseph, and thank you for joining me. Now, let me start by telling our listeners that you are, in fact, a professor. Tell us a little more about that side of things. Yes, Rick, thank you. I'm a professor of medicine. I'm now Professor Emeritus at the University of Melbourne. Uh, I trained as an endocrinologist and have uh, conducted my research predominantly in type 2 diabetes and for the last 20 years, uh, both diabetes and obesity. I moved to study obesity because it is the main driver of type 2 diabetes. So I reasoned that if we need, if we need to uh, control diabetes, we have to control obesity. You mentioned about your research and about your area of expertise. How did this lead to you writing this book? I was moved to write this book because there is a lot of misinformation about obesity in the community. Nearly everybody assumes that obesity is caused by bad habits, when in fact it's much more complex than that. 
and there is clear evidence, for example, of a genetic predisposition to obesity. In addition, much of the information contained in the book is of recent origin. Uh, Some of the work that we did in my own laboratory um, was only published in 2011 and 2014, for example, and many in the community, many in the medical profession were not taught uh, about uh, these topics because the research is recent. So I thought a good way of educating both the health profession and also the general public is to put it all in a book, um, in one um, one book that can then explain um, most of what needs to be known and what our current state of knowledge is about this important topic. Now, this next question may, for our listeners, have an obvious answer, but who is your intended readership? Who do you think this book is for and why? When I started writing this book, obviously the first question you ask yourself, who is your target audience? And I tried my best to write the book in such a way that it would be readable for the um, educated lay person, uh, but would also not be too... um, simple, if you like, for the medical profession, the medical students, the doctors, the dietitians, uh, exercise physiologists, etc., who um, manage patients with obesity. Now, we've talked about weight loss. We've talked about type 2 diabetes. Um, Those things aside, what else would you like to see readers of this book to learn or take away from what you've written? Well, after reading this book, um, the reader will learn about obesity, um, how we assess it. They'll learn about the complications of obesity. They'll learn about the um, really elegant way uh, with which, by which the brain regulates body weight. They will learn why nearly everybody regains weight after weight loss. And then there are two chapters, one on weight loss itself and the other on helping what is the best way to maintain weight loss long term um, that then address how best to lose weight and to keep it off. And the book um, finishes with um, some recipes about low-carbohydrate diets that are part of both the weight-losing and the weight-maintaining phases of the program. Now, we've talked about weight loss being you know, a big contributing factor to type 2 diabetes and, and obviously other health implications, but... Why do you think that um, obesity, if I can use that word, is becoming an increasing problem in in modern society? What do you think is the the major factor? The the major factor is clearly the the fact that in our modern life we have an overabundance of energy-dense food 24-7, but in addition to that, we, those of us who live in cities um, have had obligatory physical activity removed. We no longer have to work physically to go find our food, for example. Um, so that has been imposed now on a biology that was adapted for conserving energy, for looking for food all the time. Because remember, we our biology was optimised when we didn't have agriculture, where we didn't have supermarkets or refrigerators. 
So the biology says you need to be hungry, you need to be um, able to store fat easily, and that has come up against our own cleverness in changing our environment to remove physical work and to have all this food that we have now. So it's a combination of two things. The book describes an analogy of two pots that are left out in the rain overnight. One is a 50-litre pot. The other is a 5-litre pot. When you come back the next morning, you notice that both pots are full. And you ask of the 50-litre pot, is this 50-litre pot holding 50 litres of water because it rained last night? And the answer has to be yes, because if it hadn't rained, it wouldn't have had any water in it. But in fact, the reason why this pot is holding 50 litres as opposed to the 5-litre pot is because it was made a 50-litre pot. In other words, the, the environment appears to be the only cause of the pot being full of water, but in fact, it was also made a 50-litre pot. And he, this is the analogy with the genetic makeup. People who become obese have a genetic predisposition to do so in our current environment. It's often said that the, the food industry, in particular the fast food industry and uh, you know sweet manufacturers and so on, are very much to blame for the much of the obesity problem. What do you say in, in relation to that? It's not that simple. It's not that simple. The, the book discusses um, the evidence that apart from the genetic predisposition, there's also an, another phenomenon called epigenetics. And the way that uh, some foods may cause obesity is not the way you might think by providing extra calories. There is some evidence that what we feed our children early on in life may epigenetically imprint genes that then lead them to have permanent obesity in, in future life. And there's a, there's a section which is probably the most um, technical of the sections that describes how a gene is, works and how epigenetic change can occur. My view is that most of obesity is either genetic or epigenetic. And it's the epigenetic component that is responding to the environment. And I guess having high-energy foods early on in life in susceptible people may then lead to epigenetic change leading to obesity. And that's how the food industry may be inadvertently contributing to the obesity epidemic. It's not causing obesity on its own. And the reason for that is if you are genetically lean, the environment cannot make you fat. It can make you overweight and only. And the reason for that is the most powerful hormone that inhibits hunger comes from fat. It is made in fat cells. So this is a classical negative feedback loop. So you can do the thought experiment. If you are skinny, generally, naturally, but you put yourself in an obesogenic environment where you can eat all you want and, and it's high energy and you don't exercise, you start to you start to accumulate fat. As you make fat, you make more and more of this hormone, leptin, which then feeds back and inhibits your hunger and makes your energy expenditure go up. So it produces a self-limiting uh, weight gain, if you like, and my view is that that can lead to six or seven kilo weight gain but will not lead to severe obesity unless you have a gene that prevents leptin from working properly.
Now, some may say, and I'm sure you've heard this yourself, um, that it's just another slimming book. But in your opinion, what do you think makes your book different and why should our listeners choose your book? Well, many weight loss books are not based on hard scientific evidence. This one is. And in addition... It's written by someone who's treated obesity for the last 20 years in a public hospital, uh, and it's also um, evidence-based. Um, most most of the other books don't bother, under, well, they don't understand body weight regulation. And as with any condition, unless you understand its true cause, you cannot achieve good treatment or management. You need to understand a condition in order to treat it properly. And this book addresses all that since it is based on hard scientific evidence, much of which, of which is quite recent. Give me three words that you think would best describe the effectiveness of this book. Three words, the effectiveness. Well... Um, knowledge, effective therapy, long-term maintenance. I know that's more than three words, but they're three phrases, but yeah. Yeah, I know where you're coming from. Now, getting back to right at the beginning when you sat down and decided to write this book, tell me some of the, the challenges that, that you faced and Obviously, on the, on the positive side, some of the rewards that you got from writing this book. Well, the, the challenge, as I've already mentioned, was knowing how to, where to pitch it, for who. Because, you know, if I'm writing for physicians only, I would have put a lot more technical information in there. If I'm writing for the lay audience only, I may not have put the epigenetic chapter in it, for example. So it, the, most, the biggest challenge was trying to make it accessible to both the, the lay public and the medical profession and not um, make it seem uh, inappropriate for either. The best thing for me to come out of it is if I can relieve some patients who are obese from the guilt of being obese, that would be good. If I can lead some doctors to be able to treat obesity more effectively, that would also be good. And to help people um, control their weight um, would be a great satisfaction to me. Do you have any plans to write a follow-up book or possibly a book on something completely different? I have um, a nearly complete draft of a book called Rediscovering God, um, which I, I started writing before I wrote my weight loss book, but which is um, requires two more chapters. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more about that. Now, in closing, is there anything that you would like to add that we haven't covered here yet uh, during the interview that you feel is important for our listeners to know about your book and about the work that you're, you're doing? I think the, the book explains why nearly everybody struggles to maintain weight loss. Um, it shows that there is a powerful biological mechanism by which the body defends a set point of weight and shows all the evidence for that. The book also then describes the best method to lose weight. It is, it's best to lose weight quickly rather than gradually, as we demonstrated in 2014, and it makes no difference to the weight regain. It's not true that the quicker you lose it, the quicker you put it on. The book then uh, also talks about the strategies required to maintain weight loss, 
and it justifies very powerfully the need for appetite suppression following weight loss and and demonstrates that this has to be lifelong, that obesity is in fact a chronic condition. Thank you, Joseph. Body weight regulation, essential knowledge to lose weight and keep it off. It's published by Libris and is available direct from the publisher at Libris.com and all good bookstockists. Once again, I would like to thank my guest today, the author, Professor Joseph Prioetto, for joining me on the show and we wish him every success with his book. This is Rick Bell for Torganet Radio. Thank you for listening. Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on astronetradio.com. Back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Rendezvous, and my author, Pete Liebenbug, Liebengood, uh, sorry, go already messed up. Liebengood, um, and Pete Liebengood <laughs> joins me from San Francisco, California, in the United States. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Yeah, quite a, quite all right. Thank you for uh, taking time to visit me. I know you had a busy morning. You were at McDonald's doing whatever McDonald's does, uh, and uh, you uh, have have entered the, uh, the 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 marketplace as an author. You have a background in media. Share with my audience a little of your background and how it relates to your story. Ooh, well, well, it does actually uh, relate quite well. I spent uh, almost a quarter of a century in the TV news business. And as a sportscaster, primarily, but as a show producer as well, and a, and a news reporter in a brief period of time. But uh, the book is about uh, TV news today, local TV news. And uh, the setting is in uh, Sacramento, California, where I happen to have worked at one time at KCRA TV, one of the great TV stations in America as far as news is concerned. And um, it's about about news, and it's also about the greed that news and the news competition produces. This is a, a story that is fictional, of course, but I would think that with your background and all of the insider stuff that you have access to or had access to, some of those may have spilled over into the storyline. Is that a possibility? You have 309 pages of material. <laughs> well, well, more spilled into some of the characters, okay? <clears throat> I met a lot of... Um, idiosyncratic people uh, doing uh, television news over the years. See, I was there at the, really at the start of uh, um, when TV news grew, grew on the local level from 15-minute newscasts to news at 6, 11, at 12 o'clock at, uh, at noon. Right. Uh, that was really, really the birth of, of TV news. So I saw it firsthand, and it hasn't changed a whole lot now. And Now it's more of a factory than it was a craft uh, in the early 70s. Uh, because there's so many requirements for so many shows to to divide a particular story up into five different stories instead of one. I'd say most of it is drawn, it's not modeled after one character, but it, there's a lot of other characters that I've come across that are in some of the characters that are in the book, for sure. And, yes. and, and I try to make it uh, as, as entertaining as possible. This book is uh, it's a mystery thriller, but it's also, I call it mystery thriller light because there's a dash of humor in there, too, as well. Fantastic. Now, did I pronounce the title of your book correctly? Because you've spelled it R-E-N-D-E-Z-V-U. Uh, yeah. I, is, it, is it a correct pronunciation? 
It is. I thought I was being clever. <laughs> you were. Well, it's clever. <laughs> it's, it's a take. It take off on the word, but the the principal, the protagonist in the in the story, is a news reporter named Kimberly Vu. Hmm. She's a Vietnamese American, ah. and uh, thus the play on the words. Um, but she's she's the she's the main character, and they, we follow her all the way through the book, and it's her really her story. That's a fantastic. That's a fantastic play on words. You have. Uh, <laughs> uh, is this your first novel of this type? No, no. I have. This is actually my fourth. Um, I have um, uh, started about two. Th- I started on a lark, actually. I uh, it was my. I'm going to give myself away here in terms of age, but my 50th high school reunion a couple of years back. Uh, I somebody had, at my 40th year reunion. Somebody said, "Why don't you write a book about us?" I, I was thinking about writing a book. I was telling them, and I said, "Well, you know what? I think I'll do that." And I did that as a as a really a gift. I didn't even tend to market the book or anything like that I, I published it online and um, you know got about a hundred copies and took it to my reunion and gave it away mm-hmm. and it was about it was about my high school class the, the year of my class none of the characters again were real characters um, but that that's what started it and I got a, a really good review from um, I think it was uh, Clarion Clarion reviews uh, I got a four out of five star review on the book and I went wow. wait a minute maybe Maybe I could do this, and uh, it's, that's something to do in retirement. And so here I am now. I'm just I'm like two two hours away from finishing a fifth book. That's incredible. How long did it take you to complete Rendezvous? It's about a six month writing process. Um, all of them have been, have been about the same. Um, you put factor in the editing process, and it's probably eight months, uh, something like that, eight to nine months. That's amazing. You, yeah. your, your writing process, I have talked to a number of authors, about 1,500 or 1,600 interviews. The, uh, the way they assemble the storyline and all of that is always different with each author. Do you sit down with an outline, or is it inspirational? You just sit down, and the story flows through your, 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 your mind and your heart, and the emotions, all of that just flow onto the page. I'm a, I'm a bad boy, I guess, if you follow the Jim Patterson uh, uh, code. I, I took an online class of his uh, just recently, actually, and he is an absolute stickler for uh, outlines. He does. Hmm. He'll spend two months on an outline. I'll spend two minutes. Wow. Um, I, I think I think it's from I, I think it comes from my background again in, in TV news, in the sense that um, when you're doing a preparing a story for a, a, a newscast. Uh, and you're up against the clock. You don't have time to sit down and uh, and do an outline. You have to you have to outline in your head. And I think that was kind of my training. And that's where I know beginning and end, but everything else in between just comes when I sit down. So that's a great gift. Your imagination was that something that was there early on before you got into news? Yeah, I think so. I was I was regarded as a fairly creative uh, news reporter or, or sports sports reporter. I did a lot of, uh, I would guess you call it off the wall stuff, in addition to straight reporting. Just saying, uh, does that mean you have written for magazines like Mad Magazine or some of those others unique uh, publications? (laughs) No, 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 I haven't gone that far. I haven't gone that far. Or Saturday Night Live, none of those. No. No, nothing like that. And I guess I will not ask, would you like to? I mean, that, that doesn't enter into the equation. Uh, your other novels that you have written, do they follow the same sort of format, not as far as uh, not character development, but as far as uh, style and, and area of interest? Yeah, absolutely. Not necessarily area of interest. One book was uh, Accidental Drowning, was about a, a, a guy that uh, captured a murder accidentally by flying his, he was flying his drone and saw somebody tied up, gagged, and thrown into a pool and didn't come out. And the other one was called Honeyball, which is a takeoff on the name of Moneyball, but it's about a woman, a young woman in her 40s who inherits a minor league baseball team and hires all women to run the operation hmm. and runs into all kinds of runs into all kinds of old school baseball um, resistance. Um, but uh, I forget what my point was going to be, but um, those are, but, but well, I know what I was going to say. It's my style, I try, try to emulate, and I'm not, I'm I'm proud of it, I guess. Uh, Carl Hyacin is a is a is my model for uh, my style of writing. He has a lot of quirky characters. Um, he he's a very successful novelist. He's a um, 
terrific sense of humor, uh, even though there are mysteries involved in his, his, his books. Um, it's just his style. I mean, I'm, I'm a poor imitation of Carl Eisen, and if he probably ever hears, hears me say that, why he'll probably choke on his coffee, but he is kind of my model. Um, and, and, the, and I think in the quirkiness of the characters, I, I try to make my characters as, as easily identifiable as possible. Manage to carry that through all, all my novels. And I'm understanding you love entertaining, too, so it's more than just the hard facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, my whole idea is to, is to, well, first of all, move the story along at a really quick pace. I do that when my chapters are never more than about four or five pages. And move the, the the story, move the plot, move, 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 move. That's what I learned in TV news too. Again, it goes back to my roots. You have maybe two minutes to tell a story, and you, that story has has got to move from narration to to interview sound bites to if you're doing a stand up on camera, it has to move. That was really how I was disciplined, and that's how I kind of disciplined my own writing. Describe for my my listeners the basic overview of your plot. You have introduced your character Miss Vu to the to the audience. Oh, how does yeah. that come together? Well, it's it's pretty simple. <laughs> she she trades sex for um, a information from the uh, chief of police of the town of Sacramento on breaking news stories. In other words, she gets the jump on everybody else uh, in terms of. Uh, uh, going live with a story mm-hmm. in exchange for a relationship. And, that's, and that leads to all kinds of problems. And that's what you mean by jump on the story. <laughs> how does how does the chief of police of Sacramento feel about your writing? I, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard from the chief yet. So I, <laughs> or any I, of his I, officers. I don't know, but I, I have a lot of friends who are scared of me because I have a lot of friends. In, uh, I, I live in, in the San Francisco area in, in a suburb of Redwood City, and uh, and. Two of my best friends are the district attorney and the uh, and the county sheriff, and uh, they always worry that I'm going to I'm going to be modeling them in one of my pieces of fiction. But so that uh, that <laughs> not so far that yet. probably uh, opens the door for some scintillating conversation when you get together. They don't talk. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always say, hey. Just remember, I could be using this. Yeah, great. That's great. Well, nothing like good uh, sources for for material. You mentioned that you did receive a uh, uh, receive recognition from uh, one of the, um, uh, I guess, award services, not award services, but one of the recognition services about your writing style. On the individual side, have you heard from people who are complete strangers who don't know you, who have read your book, and say, hey, this is pretty good? Yeah, you know, that, uh, that's kind of the big, biggest been the biggest reward for me. Is when somebody comes up. I, I don't know. I always, I used to get that too. When people would would say they come up to you when you you know your face is on television every day, and they'd say, "Hey, I really like your work." That's 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 worth the price of admission to anything, you know. Yes. And and when somebody says, "I really I really liked your book," I, you know, I couldn't put it down, uh, or I read it on the way to New York. <laughs> it was <laughs> it wasn't that simple to read, but anyway, yeah. No, that's 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 the reward that I get from this. You know, it's like I said, I'm, I'm retired now. And, uh, this is uh, other than playing bad golf. This is what I do. Well, it's fantastic. Describe for me your, your primary reader. Who's the ideal person that is going to enjoy this? Is this a guy novel or is this going to be one that'll reach everybody? I, I think it's probably more female. Um, I was looking at some research that, uh, uh, I'd done through Google some advertising and where they um, they break it out uh, demographically and women 35 to 45, 50 would seem to be the leading uh, component. Um, all of my, I see, I, well, the last three books, the last three books, the woman has been the main character. Hmm. So it, that's why I think the appeal would be more toward, uh, more toward women. Well, that in itself is an interesting approach or or sideline that you have how, the ability I, to to con- convey that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how I came. I don't know how I <laughs> came in that direction because I had to ask somebody um, along the way, an editor. I said, "Am I portraying women right here?" Because uh, I, I, I I've never done that before, and uh, I, I got a, a green flag, so I just continued. 
Well, that's that's fabulous uh, news. That. Fabulous news, and and certainly a commendation to you as a writer to be able to uh, channel, if I may use that word, the uh, the feelings, emotes, emotions of a female. You, uh, with all of your novel writing and so on, which of the books do you think will adapt best to movies or uh, television? Do you think the Rendezvous will also be a contender? Uh, probably not as much because probably it's a little bit more toward TV type. Uh, shows, but uh, Accidental Droning has already had some interest. I have a, there's a gentleman in Hollywood, very well respected, who has taken, we have kind of come to terms on uh, an agreement for him to uh, market Accidental Droning uh, to see if uh, he can get any interest from uh, motion picture companies. And I think Honeyball is also, I think that's a a movie in itself. Um, I don't, like I said, Rendezvous, not probably as much because it might be a little too stereotyped. But uh, those first two, I think, are definitely um, motion picture related, specifically accidental droning with the tremendous interest now in drones and uh, people buying them right and left. And and some of the, you know, privacy issues, it's the most raucous of the the books. Uh, And it's it's a little bit of a stab at the political structure. Uh, It's a campaign that the woman is involved in. It's also one of the characters, one of the antagonists. But... um, uh, I'm kind of like holding my breath on Hollywood. Well, it, you never know what's going to happen. And uh, congratulations on the completion of this in your uh, career as a writer. This one titled Rendezvous, V-U. And uh, my guest author joining me from near San Francisco, California in the United States is Pete Liebengood. And that is spelled L-I-E-B-E-N-G-O-O-D. Pete, where do we get copies of your books? Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, or exlibris.com, which is the the uh, publisher, and um, hopefully at a bookstore near you soon. Uh, we're working on that, but Amazon is your primary. Uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble are your primary uh, outlets. Fabulous. And do you also have a website? The, yes, I do. Uh, you can check out all of the books and some of the, the movie trailers and. Uh, also, some of the reviews on uh, PeteLiebenGood.com. And again, the spelling for Liebengood. L-I-E-B-E-N-G-O-O-D. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today, today Pete. Uh, pleasure visiting with you, and best of luck in the future. Hope to hear from you again. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.